I'll be reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I became a follower of Jesus Christ in the fall of 1987, a couple of months after I arrived on the campus of Virginia Tech. I don't remember the exact date, but it was 30 years ago this month when someone shared the gospel with me and God opened my eyes. And in my excitement was such that I wanted to share the source of my joy with others, but being new to the faith, I was also fearful because people might have theological questions I didn't have answers to. And instead of leading them into God's kingdom, I will be a stumbling block to them. The, the gaps in my knowledge will ultimately make me responsible for giving people a one-way ticket to an eternity without God. Still, I went ahead and spoke. And in several instances, I felt I didn't do a good job. One event I remember well was when a friend who I will refer to as JP agreed to let me explain the gospel to him. I went through the passages that allowed me to give a quick explanation, including Ephesians 2, 4-9, which Kimmy just read for us. And when I was finished, I said, okay. I'm sorry, when I finished, he asked me, okay, what do you want me to do? And I said, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he replied, wait a minute. You're asking me to do something. You're asking me to work. And I said, no, it's not work. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Back and forth we went until the night ended with me frustrated and him still in the ranks of the unsaved. JP was a computer science major and I was an engineering major. It seems to me that our majors naturally introduced the difference between how we processed ideas. Mathematicians and computer science majors generally feel the need to have exact answers. As engineers, we have the license to say, yes, that's not exact, but it's good enough for all practical purposes. (laughs) So I went away from that conversation thinking that his concern was just splitting theological hairs, or to quote Shakespeare, it was much ado about nothing. But many years later, I came to the realization that this was not a trivial matter that J.P. actually had a point. That's when I learned that the early church thinkers and the reformers dealt with the same issue that he brought up. And the result was a doctrine that has come to be known as sola gratia, that is, grace alone. And that's what I hope to cover today. And for those who might be visiting, we're currently preaching on the five solas that came out of the Protestant Reformation in celebration of our spiritual heritage that began with that event 500 years ago this month. The five solas being sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. Now for this current series, we have temporarily departed from our normal expository preaching style in order to highlight this event. 
And as Pastor Tom mentioned a couple of weeks ago, these doctrines were not new teachings that the Reformers came up with, but rather they were teachings that were affirmed by the Church Fathers, but were lost in the centuries that followed. The Reformation was really a movement to recover and return to the biblical teachings of the early church. And with regard to sola gratia, the issue being addressed at the time arose from this question. Given that salvation is by faith alone, as we read in Ephesians 2.8.9, as we sang, what is the source of that faith? Is that faith God-given or is it a condition of justification that is left for man to obtain? That is, what God doesn't provide, we must provide in order that we be redeemed. We have a situation here whereby two people affirm justification by faith alone. But one says, the faith I have is a gift from God. And the other says, the faith I have is partly from an exercise of my will. So which one is it? Is salvation wholly of God or something that is partly of God and partly of us? Now, during the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only church, affirmed that salvation is by grace. But the key word is the word alone. We will revisit this later, but without getting ahead of myself too much, let me mention that the church's position had human beings contributing to their salvation, thereby negating the sufficiency of the grace spoken of in Ephesians 2. Also, I would like to mention that there are two major theological doctrines that form the underpinning of sola gratia, namely the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of election. And as I continue, the significance of those two doctrines will hopefully become clear. Now, before the Reformation, the term sola, uh, before the term sola gratia came into being, the earliest documented discussion of this doctrine was initiated in the 5th century, 11 centuries before the Reformation, by Augustine, the bishop of Hippo. By the way, Hippo was an ancient city in present-day Algeria. It's not short for hippopotamus. The event during that time period that provoked the clarification of this doctrine is what is now referred to as the Pelagian Controversy. The Pelagian Controversy. It was named after the British monk Pelagius, whose theology reached a crisis point when he read a famous prayer that was written by St. Augustine. That prayer by St. Augustine goes like this. O God, Grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. Let me repeat that. O God, grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. Let's consider the two parts of that prayer. The second part, which goes, command what thou dost desire, Pelagius had no problem with. God is the so uh, sovereign moral lawgiver, and he certainly has the right to require his creatures to do his bidding. It's the first part that Pelagius had a problem with. The part that goes, God grant what thou commandest. Pelagius asked the question, why ask God to gift what he commands? Is God asking us to do something that we cannot do unless he grants it? And one thing is clear. Pelagius did not misunderstand Augustine's prayer. This is exactly what the bishop of Hippo was saying. 
No one is capable of obeying God's commands unless he grants that ability. And to illustrate, let's just consider one command, just one command. God says, be holy as I am holy. How holy is God? Perfectly holy. And as the creator of everything, he has the sovereign right to demand holiness from everything around him. And so we who are his creation are to emulate his perfect holiness. Now, Augustine asserts that in creation, man was capable of living a perfect life before God. But during the fall, man was ruined and corrupted to such an extent that he was no longer able to obey all of God's commands and live a normally perfect, or I'm sorry, a morally perfect life. The only way this is even possible is with, with God's help through his gift of grace. Now, this is the doctrine of original sin. It's not a term used to refer to the very first sin committed by Adam, but rather the result of that very first sin, which was and is the corruption of all humanity so that from the moment of birth, we are no longer able to achieve perfect holiness and righteousness. And since God's sovereign mandate is for all of us to be holy, our inability incurs His righteous judgment. And this is the idea that Pelagius objected to. Pelagius, on the other hand, was saying Adam's sin only affected Adam and there's no transfer of the brokenness to his descendants. Adam's sin didn't do anything to change the nature of man. We are all born with the same spiritual condition that Adam had before the fall with the power to live perfect lives. Now this conflict with Pelagius forced Augustine to clarify his teachings on the fall of man. That is, the doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of election, which we will cover shortly. Now, the principal idea of Augustine was that man's fall was so radical that we are born in a state of spiritual death, in bondage to sin, and morally incapable to do the will of God. Now, even in our fallen state, we never cease to be bearers of God's image which explains why unconverted parents can love their children. Unconverted husbands can still treat their wives with respect and affection and so on. But the inclination of the unregenerate heart is not to the things of God. And even after conversion, our best works are still filthy rags because sin remains part of our nature and will be until we die and are glorified by God. Now, Eventually, in the year 418, the Council of Carthage sided with Augustine, and the church condemned Pelagius as a heretic and completely rejected Pelagianism. Now, in addition to Pelagius and Augustine, there was a third significant person in this debate, a man by the name of John Cassianus, more often referred to as Cassian or Saint Cassian, as he was recognized as a saint by both the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church. Now, Cassian... Augustine and Pelagius were contemporaries. They were all born within six years of each other. Now, Cassian. Cassian rejected pure Pelagianism, although he was disturbed by some elements of Augustine's teachings. So he gave a modified view, a middle ground, if you will, that has come to be known as semi-Pelagianism or partial Pelagianism. Now, let me just mention that Cassian did not coin those terms. He proposed that Augustine's views were new and 
represented a departure from the teachings of the church fathers. In particular, he objected to Augustine's view on election, stating that the proposed view, quote, cripples the force of preaching, reproof, and moral energy, plunges men into despair, and introduces a certain fatal necessity. Augustine's, uh, unquote, Augustine's strong views, according to Cassian, are not necessary to refute the heresies of Pelagius. According to semi-Pelagianism, there really was a fall in Adam, and there was a change in our nature that did very serious damage to the moral capacity of all human beings. That is, we are born sinners, and that the will, soul, and heart are all severely weakened. However, it's not so serious that man is left in a state of complete inability with respect to the things of God. Grace is given not so man has the power to have faith, but rather grace is given as an assistance to the faith of a person who begins to will that he be saved. In short, the initial conversion of man is a synergistic work. Synergistic, a, co- a, co-op- a cooperation, sorry about that, cooperation between God's grace and man's will. If God gives us no grace, we can hear the preaching of the gospel every day and still never come to faith. God's grace is necessary for salvation, but it is not sufficient. And that grace is resistible. That is, the purpose for which it is given does not necessarily come to pass. So the way it works, according to semi-Pelagianism, is that God the Holy Spirit attends to the preaching of the word, woos a person, and stoops to our weakness to assist us because we are severely weakened by the fall. But even in our fallen state, there remains an island of righteousness unaffected by the fall where the will is still able to accept the offer of assistance of grace or reject it. The choice is ours. To be clear, this is a choice that is being made by a still unconverted or still unregenerate person. And so evangelism that is semi-Pelagian in nature focuses on the human decision. It is a decisional conversion. One becomes a Christian by making a decision to follow Christ. And what's wrong with that notion? Aren't we volitional beings that have the ability to make decisions? Don't we make decisions every day? Indeed, we do. It's clear that both sides of this controversy acknowledge man's ability to make decisions. But in sola gratia, we are talking about the initial point of conversion. That is, the transformation from being in the kingdom of darkness to being in the kingdom of light. What Calvin and Luther taught following Augustine was that in the fall, the power of making choices freely was not lost. The will of man was not destroyed. The problem is that the will is imprisoned by sin. It's in bondage. However, we are still responsible for the moral decisions that we make. And the moral choices that we make are according to our sinful impulses. In its fallen condition, the flesh has no desire to do the things of God. Let me read John 6, verse 63. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is 
no help at all. I like the King James translation of this text where it says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. And that nothing, in one of Luther's letters to another monk by the name of Erasmus, that nothing is not a little something. By the way, on occasion, I still enjoy referring to the King James Version of the Bible because it has these cool old English words like quickeneth, profiteth, and my all-time favorite, imputeth. (laughs) The The Augustinian view is that the human spirit is dead, which is consistent with Scripture. As we read in our passage today, Ephesians 2.4, says that we are dead in our trespasses. And at the risk of sounding so obvious, one is either dead or alive. There's no such thing as partly dead. Anyone who is partly dead is alive. The language being used to describe the human condition is that we are biologically alive, but spiritually dead in our sin. On the other hand, The semi-Pelagian view is that the human spirit is sick, very sick, but not dead. And to make a move towards the things of God, it needs assistance from God's resistible grace. As I mentioned earlier, the semi-Pelagian view of initial conversion is synergistic. That is, it's a cooperative work between God's grace and man's will. The Augustinian view is that initial conversion is monergistic. That is, solely of God. And then, and then after that, the rest of the Christian life is synergistic. That is, man's will and God's sanctifying grace work together as we grow in Christ-likeness. Now, in the year 529 AD, semi-Pelagianism was con- uh, condemned at the Council of Orange, which further established the views of Augustine as expressions of Christian orthodoxy. However, this was 10 centuries before the Protestant Reformation, and semi-Pelagianism continued to manifest itself in many movements throughout church history. And by the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, it had become the majority view in the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers then formalized sola gratia to recover what had been considered an orthodox position of the church centuries before. Now, the response of the Roman Catholic Church to the teachings of the Reformation came out of the Council of Trent that convened in March of 1547 under Pope Paul III. Statements from the Council affirm their agreement with the idea that justification and consequently salvation is by grace. However, other statements from the Council clearly show that grace is imparted not by a sovereign unilateral action on God's part, but through an administration of the sacrament of baptism. Here are some examples. Canon 5, section 7 on the canons of baptism from the Council of Trent state, If anyone says that baptism is optional, that is, not necessary for salvation, let him be anathema. Unquote. Canon 4 from the section of the sacraments state, quote, if anyone says that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary for salvation but are superfluous, and that without them or without the desire of them, men obtain from God through faith alone the grace of justification, though all are not necessarily for each one, 
necessary for each one, I'm sorry, let him be anathema, unquote. Now, these statements from the Council of Trent have not been revoked or superseded. So, to this day, these statements stand as the official views of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the relationship between grace and baptism, which is essentially a work to be performed. But these, I- these days, the idea of grace plus works goes beyond the Roman Catholic Church. If you remember, Pastor Tom two weeks ago cited a statistic that indicates that 52% of Protestants in the United States believe in salvation by grace plus works. So why does it continue to have a major foothold even to this day? I believe it's because what bothers people about Augustine's view of election is the same idea that bothered John Cassian. It says that the only people who believe and will be saved will be the elect. And to be honest, when I, came first, when I first came face-to-face with the doctrine of election, I had an objection. And my objection is a common one. And it goes like this. It's just not fair. Because not everybody gets the same opportunity. I simply didn't like it. But I had to come to grips with the truth that it doesn't matter if I like the doctrine or not. The question is, is it what the Bible teaches? If we go through the Bible, we will find that God makes sovereign choices all the time. And we don't have problems with them for the most part, nor should we. But we seem to have a problem when God sovereignly chooses who to save. Yet, it is what Scripture teaches. Consider John chapter 6, verse 65, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let me repeat that. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, hang with me here. There are three parts of that verse that we need to pay close attention to. First, the words, no one which is a universal negative. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say a few. It says no one. Now consider the next word, can, which speaks of ability. And putting them together, we have no one can, or no one has the ability. But to do what? The verse continues, come to me, or to come to Jesus. So no one can come... uh, No one can come to me. That's what we have so far. And then we have the word unless, which which implies a necessary condition. And that necessary condition is that unless it is granted to the person by the Father, or in other translations it says unless the Father enables him or draws him, it does not say unless the Father draws him and he makes a decision to follow. That spirit that the Father draws is lifeless and inert and cannot come to Christ unless that Spirit is enabled by the Father through the Holy Spirit, breathing life into it so that it becomes alive and then goes to Jesus. So if that's what the Bible teaches, why are there still objections? I think it's because we still think it's unfair. What does... Scriptures say about our objection that it's unfair. 
Well, it would seem that God, through the Apostle Paul, anticipated our objections and answered loud and clear in Romans 9, verses 14 to 21. This is in the context of objections to God making sovereign choices. It says this, Romans 9, verses 4 to 21. Quote, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump of vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Unquote. If you've seen the football movie, Rudy, good movie, by the way, whether you like football or not, a particularly memorable line that I like is one that a Catholic priest in that movie said. That priest, in talking to Rudy, the title character, said, Son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I am not Him. That's the truth. Whatever else we may have in our theology, one indisputable fact is that we are not God. God is sovereign. We are not. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He does not owe saving grace to anybody. And even if he gives it to only one, even if God gives his saving grace to only one, he's not obligated to give it to anybody else. He doesn't violate his just character with the sovereign choices that he makes. So we cannot accuse him of being unjust or unfair. Only the elect receives the grace that leads to regeneration. And rather than object, we should do like Job did and say, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Now I realize I've thrown a lot of names dates, and theological terms at you. And my goal in doing so was for you all to appreciate the fact that through the years, God has provided us with saints whose thinking benefits us today in terms of understanding the truth of Scripture. But allow me to just um, explain or repeat what sola gratia means one last time. Sola gratia states that salvation is monergistic in the beginning. That is, it's the work of God's grace alone. Then after that, the Christian life is synergistic. That is, the regenerate person then works out his or her entire life in cooperation with sanctifying grace. But the beginning point is by God's sovereign initiative of rescuing us by His grace and His grace alone. At this point, I'd like for us to consider why this doctrine 
is so important for us today. We will consider its importance in terms of how it should affect our understanding of God and consequently our worship of Him. Of him. If you received Ray's email, he, he rightly called out, you know, we don't want this to just be an intellectual exercise. We want to see how should it affect our worship. Now, first of all, proper understanding of sola gratia should lead to an increased humility before God and before men. As we grow in the understanding that we bring nothing to the table when it comes to our salvation, it should shrink our pride before Him to realize we have no right to arrogantly think of Him as unfair or unjust. But it shouldn't end there. This increased humility before God should manifest itself as a greater attitude of humility before our fellow believers as well. Now, today, there continues to be people in the church on both sides of this debate. And that makes this doctrine a potential powder keg that could impede fellowship among believers. And when it comes to sola gratia, there are believers who have come to understand and appreciate the doctrine, and there are believers who struggle with it. Now, notice that I referred to both groups as believers. Because in the final analysis, even though the semi-Pelagian controversy is no small matter from the standpoint of how it affects our worship, it's not always a dispute between believers and unbelievers. And within the church, it is an intramural debate between believers. If I may humbly speak to those who struggle with this doctrine, I am sympathetic and I understand your difficulties because I was there. I had my struggles with sola gratia. And I think, I think it's because we are naturally semi-Pelagianists in our thinking. What do I mean by that? We know in our hearts, whether we are believers or not, that we have offended God. We know that. And because we are made in His image, we possess a sense of justice. And that sense of justice tells us that since we offended God, it's up to us to atone for it. But the scripture tells us we can't. We can't. The idea of sola gratia is, is like us accepting money from a person to whom we owe money in order to pay that same person back. <laughs> Inwardly, we know that's not just. But that's good. Because it's not justice that we need. It's mercy through God's grace. That's sola gratia. And so if you're struggling with this doctrine, I would ask you to ponder anew the glorious, magnificent mercies of the Lord that are found in Scripture. And the passages we covered this morning would be a good starting point. Now, let me speak to those of you who are at the stage in your theology where you have come to terms with this doctrine. I'm not necessarily saying that you've reached a point where you understand it completely because we can't plumb the depths of this doctrine and unlock all the mysteries contained in it. Just as there's no room for boasting that we have somehow contributed to our initial regeneration, there is no room for boasting in a way that we become uncharitable and even look down 
on those who are struggling with this doctrine, or for that matter, any other doctrine. Our understanding of Scripture is also a gift from God. There are people who are critical of those who call themselves Reformed Christians because it seems that the Reformed believers think they have all their theological I's dotted and T's crossed. Sadly, that charge is true in some situations. The simple fact is that none of us know it all. We all have gaps in our theology, whichever side of the sola gratia debate we land on. Now, when I say gaps in our theology, I refer not only to those areas where we are ignorant, but even to those ideas where we are flat out wrong and are contrary to biblical teaching. We might even refer to those ideas as unchristian. We all have them because we are immersed in our culture and we can't really be in water without getting wet, you might say. Let me give you an example from my own thinking. Many times I catch myself saying, good luck to people. The word luck doesn't even appear in Scripture. And this idea has its roots in pagan thinking. But saying that doesn't make me an unbeliever any more than knocking on wood makes any of us an unbeliever. You know, I could say to my wife, Carmen, I am overjoyed and blessed that God preordained before the foundation of the world that you would be my helpmate it is my privilege to wash you in the word and love you as Christ loved the church. That's biblical language. I could say to her, but instead I say to her, I'm such a lucky guy. <laughs> now, does that make me an unbeliever? May I say that it should take more than that to label me a heretic or count me among the ranks of the unsaved? Now, it is, of course, true that there are doctrines that are so blatantly and severely unchristian that it makes one a non-Christian, denying the deity of Christ, for example. That is a sure indicator, indication that, makes, that one is a non-Christian. Another would be believing that Jesus is just one possible way to God or promoting a lifestyle that is contrary to the clear commands of God, and so on. I'm sure that there were times we have heard a fellow believer say something concerning a point of doctrine that is in a gray area or impossible to resolve with great confidence. Or it could be clear from Scripture, but they struggle with accepting it. We must fight the tendency to say, how can you think like that and call yourself a Christian? Sola gratia is one such doctrine where both sides can accuse the other of being unchristian. So it would serve us well to remember a famous quote that is often attributed to St. Augustine that goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And may I add, in all of those things, humility. Sola gratia should increase or should lead to an increase in humility before God and consequently before each other. For what do we have that has not been given to us? Secondly, sola gratia should lead to an increased trust in God. It should lead to an increased trust in God, particularly in trusting Him fully for the fruit that will result from our labor for the gospel. A few weeks ago, I was watching the aftermath of a college football game that just ended. 
and the sideline reporter was interviewing the running back from the winning team who was picked as the player of the game. When the young man was asked to share his thoughts on his excellent performance, he said, what I did was let go and let God. I'm not sure what he meant. But in watching the highlights of his performance in the game, I saw him avoiding would-be tacklers, running over defenders, and keeping his legs moving just as any good running back should. I did not see him magically float in the air while opposing defenders looked like they were being tossed around like ragdolls by an invisible hand. So I don't suppose that's what he meant when he said, let go and let God. I certainly hope what he meant was that he diligently did what was expected of him and left the results to God. In a sense, that is what we should do when we labor for the gospel. Letting go does not mean we do nothing and expect God to bring forth fruit anyway. It should mean that we work and then trust God for the results. Before I understood the implications of sola gratia, I always looked for ways I could improve the way I communicated the gospel to people. Nothing wrong with that. But then when someone I share the gospel with rejects its message, I often thought it's because I didn't do a good job presenting it clearly. When I truly understood that salvation is by God's grace alone, I realized what I am called to do is to obey God's command to proclaim His gospel and then trust Him for whatever fruit will come out. And so whether I found myself dealing with spiritually hard ground that needs to be broken or with a very fertile ground that may have been broken by someone else before me, I can rest and trust God for the results. We are called to labor for the gospel, and after we do, sola gratia allows us, as that running back said, to let go and let God. Sola gratia leads to an increased trust in God. Lastly, sola gratia leads to an increased worship of God. Sola gratia ultimately gives God all the glory. And having a greater depth of understanding of His grace should lead to greater worship. How is that so? Well, let's consider Ephesians 2, 8, 9 again, our passage for today. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man can boast. If semi-Pelagianism is correct in its assertion that we have an island of righteousness within us that casts the deciding vote that gets us into the kingdom, then salvation is not 100% of the Lord. And we have that of which to boast. And as we give even a minuscule amount of credit for our salvation to ourselves, we give glory, or we give ourselves glory, that rightfully belongs to God and God alone. Revelation 7.10 says, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When we fully understand that we have nothing to bring to the table when it comes to our salvation, and that it was all God's doing, our hearts should well up in gratitude. And we will fall flat on our faces before Him and ascribe to Him all the glory that is due Him. That is why the Reformers thought this was worth fighting for. 
And that's why we want to keep it central. Sola gratia should bring us all to a greater worship of God. So in conclusion, let me restate why sola gratia matters. It matters because it magnifies God's goodness and grace so that it leads to a greater humility, a greater trust, and greater worship because we recognize that all glory, honor, and credit for our salvation belong to him and him alone. Let's take a minute now to contemplate the grace that God in his mercy has bestowed upon those of us who have called on the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's contemplate the greatness of his unilateral act and give him the thanks and praise he is due. And I will close us in prayer in a few minutes.